0: The message for tonight. I got started thinking about this. Uh, I was working with a couple not too long ago in my office. I was doing some couples coaching, counseling, whatever you wanna call it. And we got onto the topic of pessimism and optimism, which is one of my favorite topics. And you would think, you know, as a pastor, that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a secular topic to get into. I don't really think so. Actually, I think optimism is a big part of the Jesus life. You know, the, the Bible says that when Jesus faced the cross, as terrible as it was, the Bible says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. There, there is a sense in which Jesus was leading out first and teaching us how important it is to find the good even in the, very, in the middle of a very, very difficult situation. So we're gonna talk about optimism tonight because I think, truthfully, this is something that all of us want, right? And, and here's the thing that we know from science. We know that nobody is completely a pessimist. Nobody is completely an optimist. And we also know that it has nothing to do with your personality. You weren't born a pessimist. You weren't born an optimist. All of us are a little bit optimistic and a little bit pessimistic, and we have a choice on a daily basis and a situational basis which side we lean into whether we lean into the, the pessimistic side or the optimistic side. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And we're going to talk about how to leverage the power of, of optimism, or if you want to call it hope, or you want to call it positivity, whatever. We're going to talk about how to leverage this in your life, and we're going to talk about my favorite optimist uh, in the Bible. But just to set this up, let's just define a, you know, kind of set up terms here. We would just say that a pessimist is generally a person who can make the worst of a good situation. Have You met somebody like this? I mean, they'll go to the Bahamas on vacation at an all-inclusive resort and they're laying there on a hammock and the waves are crashing in and you think, what could be more perfect than that? And yet they're sitting there griping about the service, griping about the fact there aren't chocolates on the pillows at the hotel. Somehow this is a person who always manages to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know? They always find a way to find something wrong no matter how good the situation is. And isn't it true that these are not people that we love to be around? Have you ever spent time with with a real honest-to-goodness pessimist? Don't you walk away just feeling fatigued? You walk away just going, oh, this person makes me so tired. You know? On the flip side, an optimist is a person who can make the best of a bad situation. They're a person who can be in a difficult challenge, and yet you kind of like to be around them because somehow in the middle of the, the big pile of junk that the situation is they somehow search through and find that nugget of gold of something positive to latch onto. i'm not talking about a pollyannish let's play the glad game kind of person i'm talking about a person who can genuinely find something good in a difficult situation and isn't it true these are the people that we want to be around and by the way isn't it true that these people are the ones who are successful in life Right? As a matter of fact, we might say that when storms come, because that's what all of us are going to face storms, the truth is that pessimists tend to sink and optimists tend to float. This is what we know again from the research. We know that people who are optimistic tend to outperform their resume. Whatever it is that they look like they have on paper, their degree, their resume, their, their, their you know, background, their setup, all of that, they're going to outperform what their resume is, but a pessimist tends to underperform what they look like on paper. This is actually part of the hiring protocol now at a lot of companies. They're wondering, does this person have an optimistic or pessimistic outlook? Because they know that that's gonna affect this person's performance apart from their resume, right? So in my mind, an optimist is somebody who can be in an ocean of of difficult circumstances and float, and a pessimist is somebody who can drown in the bathtub. You give them just something little, a little setback, a little problem, and they just fall to pieces, right? So what we want to do in in our time together is we want to talk about how do we lean more into that optimistic side. And as Christians, we would talk about how do we lean more into our faith that God is going to do something amazing even when we're in the middle of a difficult challenge. And that leads us to the person that we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about an Old Testament character named Joseph. How many of you in in this room, Joseph is like your your favorite Bible character ever, right? Okay, so, so you and me, we're on the same page. Joseph is like my favorite Bible character, and, uh, so, and the rest of you will eventually come around to seeing it my way. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph's optimism, but in order to do that, we've got to get to the end of the story. It's kind of a weird deal. The, the story of Joseph's life is so interesting, and there's so much ink on the page about it in the Old Testament, and I wish we could spend time going through all of it, but we can't. If if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, we've got an amazing series. It's it's several years old now, but we have a series called Thrive and it walks all the way through Joseph's life. I highly recommend it. But but to get to where we need to be tonight, we're gonna have to fast forward to the end. So just to get you caught up, if maybe maybe this is a new character in the Bible for you or it's a new topic, Joseph, just so you know, Joseph is a person who was incredibly productive. He was a person who was uh, that God used to do amazing things, but he was born into a really bad circumstance. He was born into a very dysfunctional family, right? I mean, in his family, there was one dad and four moms. That spells trouble. I mean, if there had been reality TV shows at that time, they would have been on MTV. I find, I I think they would have, I I think it was some sort of sister wives kind of thing. I'm not sure what it would have been, but they would have had one husband and, and four wives and these kids who all did not get along because everybody was jockeying for position. And Joseph just happened to be the favorite, he didn't do anything to become the favorite, he just was the favorite. Now, if you're in a family and you've got 11 other brothers and you're the favorite, that doesn't exactly put you in a good position with the, with the rest of the guys in the house. And it didn't for him. And his brothers decided they were done with him, they wanted to get rid of him, and so first they decided they were going to kill him. <laughs> How's that for sibling rivalry, right? Um, first they decided they were going to kill him, And after, you know, but then they realized they could make some money off of him because there's an e- Egyptian slave train coming by. Now, in that time, if your family was destitute, if you had no money, and you really needed to make money quickly, you could do a terrible thing, and nobody should have done it, but you could sell a member of your family as a slave into Egypt, and it might keep you from being destitute. But Joseph's family wasn't destitute. They didn't necessarily need the money. It was just an easy opportunity to get rid of Joseph. And so here's the thing, Joseph goes from being the favored son, and his brother sell him to this Egyptian slave term. Imagine what it's like from going from having a, having a family, having a home, being somebody that, that you never thought your, your, je- your future would be in jeopardy like this, Now all of a sudden he's shackled to a, to a caravan of other people who were being sold into slavery, not knowing what his future was gonna be like, not, knowing what, his, not lo- knowing what he was gonna be expected to do, but knowing he wasn't gonna get paid for it. He was owned now. He was going to end up in a country where he didn't speak the language, he didn't know the customs. I mean, imagine what, what that had to be like. Listen, if anybody had license to be a pessimist, it was Joseph. But then, if you know the story, you know he ends up uh, purchased by the captain of the guard in Egypt, the guy's name was Potiphar. And the one thing you've got to know about Joseph is, no matter where he is, He's successful. The Bible says that God was with him. And so even when he ended up at Potiphar's house as a low man on the totem pole slave, he was so good at what he did that he kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. And eventually he was in charge of Potiphar's entire house. Everything, that was, everything at Potiphar's house was under his control. And so it finally looked like his life was looking up again. Finally, you know, he started off as the favored son and then he had this huge letdown. Now he's the favored employee. Things are going pretty well, but he's got a problem because Mrs. Potiphar has the hots for him. And Mrs. Potiphar, the Bible says that Joseph was good looking and Mrs. Potiphar decided she wanted some of that, right? So she continually tries to get Joseph into this illicit affair with her and he keeps saying no, Right? By the way, the Bible says that he avoided her whenever he can. Guys, all antenna up here, right? Because we live in an age where there's a lot of sexual temptation out there. And Joseph has a, has a good lesson for us, right? First of all, he avoided her whenever he could. And then when she finally grabbed a hold of him to try to physically convince him to be with her, he ran away from her. So guys, number one, if staying, if staying away doesn't work, then run away. Right? So that's a sermon all in itself. But the problem is, she ended up grabbing a piece of his clothing as he ran away, and she used it as, as, she used it as evidence against him, and she went to everybody she could find and, and used it as evidence to say, he tried to rape me. As a matter of fact, she told her husband that, and her husband was so angry, he threw Joseph in prison. Letdown number two. He'd worked so hard. He made it up to being in charge of Potiphar's house. He'd worked so hard, and now he's in this dark, dank Egyptian prison for the rest of his life, bunking with rapists and murderers and terrorists, and thinking, if if, if that's me, I'm thinking, this is so unfair. This is not what I bargained for. This is not what I worked for. I am not getting what I should get in life. And I gotta promise you, if it was me at that point, I would have been having a major pity party for myself. But you know, the Bible says that Joseph succeeded in the prison. I mean, you know, when he first got to the prison, he was low man on the totem pole, but again, he brought his A-game, and he got promoted and promoted and promoted through the prison structure, and eventually, he was basically managing the prison. He was an inmate, but they were letting him manage the prison. Well, the story gets weirder. So there was an attempt on the Pharaoh's life. Somebody had plotted to try to kill the Pharaoh. And it was, from what we can tell, it was probably some sort of food poison. Somebody was trying to poison him with his food. Well, there were two people that really had touched Pharaoh's food last before it made it to him. And so they put both of these guys in prison while they investigated this thing and found out what was going on. These guys both had these terrifying dreams at night. And, and they felt like those dreams had meaning. And a lot of times, that's how God would communicate with people in that time was through dreams. And so they felt like these dreams had meaning, but nobody could explain it to him. So Joseph explains their dreams. He tells one of the guys, look, I think you did it. You're gonna die. And he tells the other guy, Pharaoh is gonna restore you to your job. By the way, when you get back to the Pharaoh, do me a favor, would you? Tell him that I'm here in prison. I've been incarcerated improperly. I didn't do anything wrong. Would you plead my case for me? And the guy says, You bet. Man, absolutely, I'm, I'm here for you, man. But the guy gets his job back. You know what that's gotta be like. He's back, he's working for the Pharaoh again. I mean, he almost, I mean, he almost got executed. What's he gonna do? Like set up an appointment with the Pharaoh? I mean, he's on probation for Pete's sake. He's gonna set up an appointment with the Pharaoh to bend his ear about this kid in prison who says he's innocent. In prison, they all say they're innocent, right? So he just forgets about him. Let down number three. And he thought maybe he would hear any day. Any day, any day, they're going to come down here for me. But it never happened. Eventually, he realizes he's been forgotten. If anybody had license to be a pessimist, it was Joseph. But then the Pharaoh had a dream, and it was a weird dream, and it freaked him out. And nobody could explain to the Pharaoh what his dream meant. And all of a sudden, this guy who works for the Pharaoh goes, Oh, I remember there's this kid in prison who was able to interpret my dreams. Maybe that guy could help you out. So they go get Joseph out of prison. And they bring him in, and he says to the king, well, let me tell you here, buddy, your, your dream is about the economy. You're getting ready to have several years where you're going to have so much, the crops are going to be so great, your economy is going to be so awesome that everybody's going to be blown away by how much money is pouring in. But here's the thing, on the back end of that, you're going to have several years, that's the worst worst crash of any economy you could possibly imagine. There's going to be no crops. There's going to be a famine. And if you don't really manage everything well, you're going to be in big trouble. So you're going to have to be very careful when you've got a lot of crops coming in, you're going to have to be very careful that you save that, you store it up so that when the time comes, you can dispense it properly so that everybody here in Egypt can live. And the king says, well, sounds to me like you've got a pretty good plan. What are you doing for the rest of your life? right?" So, here again, all of a sudden Joseph goes from being in an orange inmate jumpsuit to now he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. As a matter of fact, I think he was the most powerful man in Egypt because Pharaoh ended up on more or less an extended vacation because he just let Joseph handle everything. Well, we're almost getting to the point of the story where we need to be because when those years of plenty were over and all of a sudden that big economic crash did happen, it was devastating all over and Egypt had grain Egypt had food stored up because thanks to Joseph I mean you think about it that definitely was so important that God put Joseph in this position because he was saving lives all over Egypt because he'd save food but it wasn't just Egyptians lives cuz guess who shows up on their doorstep to buy food because the famine has spread everywhere all of a sudden on his doorstep shows up some of his brothers these are the guys that, that originally wanted to kill him and then eventually sold him into slavery. These are the guys why he lost his family, why he hadn't been able to be around his dad in years and years and years, and why he was here in Egypt. They don't recognize him now. He doesn't look like he used to. You know? He looks like an Egyptian now, he talks like an Egyptian. Everything, is, everything about him is, is completely different. So they, they don't know they're talking to they don't know they're talking to Joseph. Joseph's speaking a different language. And we don't have time to go over it, but Joseph puts them through this elaborate sequence of events to try to find out if their heart has changed. Are these the same guys, is this the same, Are there, is their character, is their heart the same as when they threw him in the pit? He wants to know. Eventually, when he's convinced that their heart has changed, then he brings them to Egypt. He brings them to Egypt with dad, he tells them who he is and he says, I wanna take care of you, I wanna, I wanna make sure you have food, I wanna make sure you have a place to, to live. But you know what the problem was? While he had gotten past what had happened when his brothers threw him in the pit, his brothers hadn't gotten past it. And over and over and over and over again, Joseph keeps having to reassure his brothers that he's not going to kill them. And that's where we pick up our story. So there's a time... When you know Joseph's brothers and, and his dad have been in Egypt for a while, now Joseph's dad dies. And this is when his brothers freak out. They think the only reason he hasn't been killing us is because he doesn't wanna break dad's heart. Now dad is dead, now he's coming for us. And once again, he has to reassure them, look, I'm not out to kill you. And this is what he says. He says, listen, I, I don't want you to be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? And this is the most optimistic statement from the most optimistic guy in the scripture. He says, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it all for good. The word intended there in the Hebrew means to weave, it means to design, to plan. He said, So you were weaving together details. You were coming up with a plan. You were plotting to harm me, but I just want you to know while you were doing that, God was weaving together details to bring me to this point. God was plotting to do something amazing for me. God was organizing the fibers of these difficult moments to get me to the place that I'm at today. That's why you don't have to worry about me. I'm all right. I don't know about you guys. I'm a little worried about y'all, but I'm fine. That's what optimism really looks like. So let me ask you a question knowing what you know about Joseph, and thinking about his statement. I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not out to get revenge. I'm not out to hurt you because because there was good in this. There was, I mean, but still thinking about what Joseph lost and what he'd been through. My question is tonight, what does it take to be that kind of an optimist? What does it take to have that kind of faith in the middle of fearful circumstances? What does it take to have hope even when you're going through difficult times? Because let me tell you, Joseph didn't just start being an optimist when he was, you know, vice-regent of of Egypt. He started being an optimist when he was following a slave train into Egypt. He had to make a choice. He's, there's a part of him that wanted to be optimistic, and there was a part of him that wanted to be pessimistic. And he leaned into the part of him that wanted to be optimistic. Well, how do you do that? I'm going to give you three things. We're going to pull these right from from Joseph's story. Three. Th- if you want to if you want to be an optimist, you can totally do it. There is nothing holding you back from from leaning into the positivity and having faith in what God wants to do in your life, there's three, thing, three, three ways that you can do it. Here's the first one. The first one is this. You have to refuse to dramatize difficulty. Just don't do it. Refuse to dramatize. Here, here's the thing. We live in an imperfect world and, and you've probably noticed that we live with imperfect people. There's, there's a decent chance that there's a few imperfect people in the house that you live in. So difficulty will come Right? This is one of the things that I have to tell my premarital couples, right? I'm all starry-eyed and still still been hit by the little magic stick of hormones that God hits us with when we're dating, you know. And I have to tell them difficulty will come, okay? It will come at some point, right? So there is gonna be some difficulty that you can't control in your life. There's gonna be some difficulty that you don't have a choice about, but what you do have a choice about is the drama. You got a choice about that. See. Here's what happens. When, when I, here's what I mean by it when I talk about drama. The the predisposition of the human condition is that when we get into a difficult circumstance, we tend to make it personal. We don't tend to leave it situational. We don't tend to look at something as being a product of a situation. We tend to make it personal. When I work with married couples, I talk about criticism. And I teach them that criticism is when we, when we tell somebody that in some way they're globally defective. So instead of talking about something that they did that bothers us, we call them a jerk. You're a jerk, you're a drama queen, you're an idiot. You always do this, you never do this. And basically what we're doing is we're putting a name tag on that person's soul and saying, this is, this is not just about a situation that happened. This is who you are, you're defective. But see, the problem is, that's part of a bigger, a bigger scope of, of the way that we tend to be as human beings. We tend to make things so personal. You know? Somebody, you know, one, one of my pet peeves in the city of Wichita, since we have so many four-way stops, I, I wonder sometimes how difficult it is to count who ends up first at a four-way stop. Because I've seen all sorts of weird orders actually take place, you know? And you know what's so easy? when somebody is the last to stop and somehow the first to go, in my mind I'm thinking, what a careless driver. I don't think, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're having a rough day and they, they just weren't paying as much attention as they needed to. Or maybe, maybe they had the impression that they were, they were first at the intersection just because of somehow the way, that, the way that it looked to them when they looked up from their car. I make it personal. It must be that they're careless. It must be that they don't care about other drivers on the road. It must be that they're in such an all fired hurry well maybe i'm less spiritual than you are but that's how that sometimes sometimes that's how i feel but see the thing about it is if we do that if we get absorbed in trying out to figure out, and this is what we do, figure out what's wrong with that person, and what's wrong with that person, what do they need to fix about themselves, and what do they need to fix about themselves, and what's wrong with my spouse, and what's wrong with my kids, and what's wrong with the people at work, and we become obsessed with that, here's what will happen, we will begin to divide the world into heroes and villains, and you'll begin to hear it in our conversations. Have you ever talked to somebody that does this? They're telling you a story about something that happened in their day, and you immediately recognize that they have divided that story into heroes and villains. Everything's very polar for them, right? So you need to know who the evil person is and who the good person is in that story. Look at what Joseph said. He said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? Well, you know what Joseph was saying? He was saying, guys, I hate to break this to you, but I don't think about you every hour of every day. And I haven't been thinking about you every hour of every day since this happened. I'm sorry to I'm sorry to let you down but I got to be honest with you you are you are not my responsibility you are God's responsibility it is not my responsibility to figure out what's wrong with you. I'm sure there's plenty wrong, but it's not my job to figure out what's wrong with you. I mean, these guys threw him in a pit for Pete's sake. There was stuff wrong with them, right? He could have said, I'm sure, there's God's, I'm sure there's some issues, but he's saying, look, it's just not my responsibility. God has not called me to spend my life obsessed with your problems. I got enough issues on my own. Here's what the Bible says about this. In Galatians, in the New Testament, the Bible says that we are to pay careful attention to what? Your own work there's two parts of that number one pay attention where not pointing the finger out pay attention here and not only am i supposed to pay attention here it says i'm supposed to pay attention to what i'm producing God is saying, if you, if you want to know what you should pay attention to, look at what you're producing. Look at the product of your life. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Christian life. Look at what is coming. What, what are you doing in this world? Look at the product of your life in this world. And that tells you what to focus on. But see, it's so easy to d- redirect focus away from what I'm producing and pay more attention to what's wrong with everybody around me. See, the problem let me tell you what I think really causes pessimism. I think pessimism is caused by, by trying to manage and take on more than we were intended to manage and take on. And let me promise you, if you try to fix everybody in your life, you are taking on more than you have the capacity to take on, right? God is at work fixing them, and it's a lifetime job for him, you know? He, he's gonna take their entire lifetime to fix them. So believe me, you don't have enough time. You, you don't have enough time to fix the people in your life. You don't have enough time to fix your kids, fix your husband, fix your coworkers, right? You, we all we all only have the time to focus on what we're producing the Bible says when we focus on that, then we'll get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself. Do you know somebody in your life who constantly tries to figure out who thinks they're better than who and whether they think they're better than this person? Or every, everything is of how much value is on top of people's heads. How much is that person worth? How much is this person worth? The Bible says really, that, that is a very anxiety-filled lifestyle. Instead, we need to not compare ourselves to everyone else. Why? Because we are each responsible for our own conduct. Who am I responsible for? This guy. This guy. That's who I'm responsible for. You know why? Because God knows that because I have a free will, because everybody else around me has a free will, I cannot be responsible for other people's choices because they have to make their own choices. One of Satan's biggest techniques is to try to get us so focused on everybody else around us that we completely lose track of what's happening with us. Okay, we could put it this way. Focusing on everyone but myself means living obsessed with problems I have not been invited to fix. And what do I mean by obsessed? Let's see, do I have time to tell the story? When I, when I was working at the last church that I served before I came here, uh, I, was, I was helping with a program that we had for a, we, we had a banquet for a specific group of people in our church, I was helping with it. I was assisting the music ministry at the time, and, uh, you know, we were setting up, but we realized that we were missing some things that we were supposed to have brought from the church, and we didn't have very much time before the program. So one of my coworkers and I hopped into his car, and he was driving towards the church at a really high rate of speed and um, not driving very safely. And as we drove down the road and we passed somebody who was on the, uh, to the right of us, that person to the right of us made a gesture that was not particularly Baptist. Um, and my my coworker said, can you believe that? And I said, no, you know, that's crazy. I can't imagine why he would have done that. <laughs> you do have airbags, right? Um, so when we, so I, and I, you know, two minutes later, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the stuff that we have to get making sure we have all the mic stands and all the stuff that we forgot and we're loading it all in the car. And, and, uh, we, you know, we get it all loaded up at the church. Some time passes and we're on our way back to the church. We've been driving for like eight minutes and he's been, the, my coworker has been deathly silent this entire time. And finally he says something. He's like, I still don't believe that guy did that. And I realized mentally he never left that place. He was still absorbed in what this other person did 20 minutes later. You know, the fastest way to pessimism is to get locked into something somebody else is doing that, listen, we don't have the capacity to change and we don't have the responsibility to change it. At A certain level, we've got to let that go. Move on and do what, look at what we're producing. Get back to what, what we're supposed to do. Okay, so we could say then that optimi- optimism is about minimizing the drama and focusing on doing the right thing, right? So that's, that's the first thing, minimize the drama, do the right thing. And the next right thing, as Henry Cloud says, I think that's a good, a good term, just uh, doing the next right thing. So here's the second thing you need to do, and that is you need to refuse to be dominated by negativity, because negativity is like a cancer and it will expand to whatever the available space is. So it is a dominant force. So we have to, we have, to have a gateway towards negativity in our life. We gotta decide what we're gonna let through the gate of our attention. We're gonna to have to decide how, how much negativity we're gonna let through. I mean, if you think about it, I told you before, if I ended up in Potiphar's house, if, if, if it's me and I'm Joseph and this is my first night working in Potiphar's house, I'm gonna be throwing one amazing pity party and yet, you know what the first verse that we have about Joseph when he's at Potiphar's house? Look at, look at this. The Lord was with Joseph, so he did what? He didn't pout. He didn't throw a pity party. He succeeded. The Bible says he succeeded in what he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. How did he do that? How do you not pout when things are not going your way? How do you not get fixated on the negative? How do you, how do you be successful when life has totally been unfair to you? Well, Let's look at what Jesus has to say about it. Jesus said, look, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, look, you don't have the capacity to manage everything that happened to you in the past. And you don't have the capacity to manage everything that's gonna happen to you in the future. If you spend your life absorbed in the bad things that have happened in the past, you're gonna be depressed. If you spend your life absorbed in the bad things you think are gonna happen in the future, you're gonna be anxious. The only thing that you can do is make a, make a conscious decision that you're gonna focus on the challenges of today because today's challenges are enough for you to carry. This is, the, this is Jesus Christ part of the triune Godhead that created this universe in which we live saying that today's trouble is enough for today. What is Jesus trying to tell us? I think he's trying to tell us that we were only designed as human beings to handle one day at a time. Just one day. How, do, how, how did Joseph succeed in the middle of such a difficult situation? Here's what I think. I think, he would, I think he rebooted every morning. I think every morning he rebooted and said, okay, today. What's today got for me? What do I gotta do today? What have I gotta do to succeed Today. Do you know that science has proven that, that the anxiety centers in our brain are tied to thoughts about the future and the past, but that they're not tied to thoughts about the present? Jesus is teaching us something very important. To a certain extent, we've got to make a choice that we're going to be focused on today because tomorrow is too much for us to carry. So optimism then is about letting go of ideal. Okay, this is a little cute. I get that. Maybe it's too cute. But it's about letting go of, of ideal and leaning into what's real. Yeah, You know, as, as a couples counselor, this one is huge for me because I have couples come in and sometimes they will spend a full opening session, a full hour explaining to me what it would take for their spouse to finally be the ideal spouse they thought they married. When they stood across from them and they vowed to to love each other for the rest of their life, they're like, but it was a bait and switch. I mean, it was a case of mistaken identity. I vowed that I was going to do these things, but I vowed it to the person I thought I was marrying, not the person that it turned out I actually did marry, you know? Some of us, we so desperately want ideal, and we're living in a protracted, like, we're living in a protracted funeral for ideal. I mean, we are weeping on the inside every day because every day when we get up, we go to a new funeral for that day for ideal. And we go and we look at the casket and we see all the stuff that we thought we were gonna have in life that we don't have. And and we grieve and we feel terrible about it and we go home and we don't, you know, we never close the funeral. We never close the casket, go to the cemetery, bury it and move on and figure out what do I really do have? This isn't what I, you know, we focus so much on what we don't have that we never do anything with what we do have. Truth is, your spouse couldn't be the ideal spouse if they wanted to. You can't be the ideal spouse if you wanted to. But there is joy and there is intimacy in approaching what is real and engaging what's real, right? So I want to show you a verse really quickly, and I'm running short of time, but I want to show you this verse. This is a favorite verse for a lot of us. Some of us have this framed in our home. I I think I have this on a coffee cup somewhere. The Bible says, this is God speaking, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. How many of you love this verse, right? It's a wonderful verse. It's an amazing verse, but make sure when you read it that you look at it in context. Make sure you look at the verses that come before because God is talking to the, to the children of Israel and at the time, they are living in, they are, they've been taken into Babylonian captivity and they're calling out to God for rescue because they're under the thumb of the Babylonians. It's a very difficult time. It's, it's not a happy time for the children of Israel. So before God says, I know the plans I have for you, here's what he says. He says, uh, this, this is what I'm saying to the captives in, in Babylon. Build homes and plan to stay. Let like go of the ideal, embrace what's real. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away. And look at this, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. He's like, I need you to focus on where you are. You're spending a lot of time focusing on where you wanna be, where you wish you could be, where if everything worked out perfectly, where you would be, but you're not there, I need you to focus on where you are. And look at. And then, he tell, then God tells them why. He said, because its welfare, the city where you're at, its welfare will determine your welfare. Let me tell you, it is not the spouse that you wish you had that has a big impact on your future. It is the spouse you do have. It is not the job you wish you had that has a big impact on your future. It's the job you do have. It's not the family you wish you had that has a big impact on your future. It's the family you do have. At a certain point, we've got to to quit grieving over what we don't have and we've got to start investing in what we do have because what we do have is going to determine what our outcome is. How do you be optimistic in a difficult situation? Well, to a certain extent, we have to make peace with what we do have. I truly believe that Joseph woke up every morning in that prison and made peace with the fact that he was in that prison. If he lived his his entire day stressing out about how unfair it was, he would have never been successful. I think every morning he had to get up and make peace with where he was and determine he was going to be successful. He was going to invest in what he did have instead of spending his life wishing spending wishing his life away for what he didn't have. So, I told you about what happened after Joseph's father died. I'm going to rewind the tape a little bit. When Joseph first tells his brothers who he is, when he first reveals himself to his brothers, he says this. He says, I'm, your, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. Uh, and he says, here's what I want. I want you to not be upset and don't be angry with yourselves. And for a long time, I just struggled with that. Why is Joseph telling his brothers, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves? why would they, you know, I was just trying to process this and figure out why would he be saying this? And it finally dawned on me. You know what he's saying to his, to his brothers? He's saying, guys, I got over this a long time ago. Time for you to get over it. I've been so, I, I was so done with this a long time ago. I haven't been living absorbed in this. I haven't been wishing for what my life could have been. You know what, God's taken pretty good care of me. And by the way, there's some people in this room that we need to make that phone call and we need to cut some people loose, And we need to say, you know what, I got past this a long time ago, it's your turn. It's your turn to get past this. Right? We let go of what's ideal and embrace what's real. All right, here's the third thing. We're almost done here. The third thing is this you've got to refuse to let the problem rob you of your potential. We've kind of been building up, with, building up to this. This is kind of what we've been talking about this entire time. But we go back to what Joseph said. He said, you intended it to harm me, but God weaved it together. He orchestrated He plotted it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. He said, you guys do recognize that this story is not a story about you. This is a story about what God is doing do all of the, He moved these things around. It's not a story about you. It's not a story about me. It's a story about what God intended to do. And he's allowing me to play a big part in this. See, one of the things about pessimism is it just, it, it robs us of our potential. God wants to do something through you. God has a plan for your life. God has a, a, a gifting, a, a, a package of talents, an anointing. And don't let that word freak you out. I know some religions and denominations have done weird things with that term of anointing. But anointing just means that God has given you gifts and talents and abilities that is so unique together when all of them are put together into one package that you have an ability to leave a footprint on this earth of, of impact that no other person could do just the way that you could. And being willing to lean into the challenge that God has put in front of you means that we really can live out the calling that God's put on our lives. Now, how do you do that? How do you lean into your calling in the middle of a difficult situation? Well, check this out. Here's what the Bible said. The Lord was, and I want you to check this out. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in Potiphar's house. Then the Bible says later, the Lord was with Joseph in the prison, right? And showed him his faithful love. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph when he was, Head of vice vice, reason, vice region, vice of Egypt. You know why Joseph knew that he could lean into his calling was because he understood he wasn't he wasn't going to have to do this alone. See, it's, it's reasonable, I guess. If, if you don't have a relationship with God and if you don't take God with you everywhere you go, I suppose it's reasonable to let your abilities and your situation define what you think you can do. But if you are actually carrying with you everywhere you go the God of the universe, then the truth is the only person who knows what your limits are is God. You don't even know what your limits are. You don't even know what you're capable of. You could do way more than you think. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that, that God is able to do what? More. Then we could ask or think, exceedingly more than we could ask or think. So what does that mean? Well, mostly, it means that your potential is not, nor has it ever been, as limited as your situation. Your potential is actually as unlimited as the God who is with you in your situation. So then optimism, we could say, is about looking past your surroundings and leaning into your calling, say, so, well, Jonathan, you're a pastor. You have a calling, but I don't have a calling. I guarantee you, you're just as called to what you do as I'm called to what I do. You have, you have the capacity and the opportunity to make an impact just as much as I do. The question is, are you leaning into your calling? Apostle Paul had something to say about this, about God being with us. He said, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, our fears for today or we've been talking about our worries, our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so why, are we, why am I emphasizing this? At the end of this talk, why are we emphasizing the fact that God is with us? we go through a difficult time. So June 11th, 1963, was a a day that started off really bad, but had a good ending. Because it was the day that two bright and promising African-American students showed up at the front doors of the University of Alabama. And the federal government had said they had a right to be there. They had a right to go to class. They had a right to attend there. But the governor, Governor Wallace, had fought so hard against it, and he had had run up against so much opposition, he'd been told that he'd lost, but he wasn't giving up without a fight, and he stood in front of the doors of the university, and he said, those students are going to enter this school over my dead body. You know... I try to put myself in the mind of one of those students, and it just seems like such a terrible moment. I mean, for so many reasons. And, it, and even, even, even with the fact that it ended up working out for them, I can't imagine what kind of heartache they had to go through as a result of this. But I will tell you this. It, Governor Wallace lost. You know why Governor Wallace lost? It wasn't because of those two students. It was because of who was with them. You know who was with them? U.S. Marshals. And the U.S. Marshals went up and had a nice little chat with Governor Wallace. And I'll paraphrase for you what they said. They said, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Either you will move out of the way or we will move you out of the way. But either way, this is gonna happen. Something's gonna change today. How do you make sense of Joseph's optimism? You know, there's always going to be days in your life when you show up at the doors of what you think is going to be your future and there's going to be something blocking it. It's going to be a person, it's going to be a situation, it's going to be a lack of a degree or it's going to be a financial hardship or something's going to be in front of the doors of the future that you want. And you're going you're to try and you're not going to make it, and you're going to try and you're not going to make it. But when the timing is right, God is gonna walk up to the thing that's blocking those doors and he's gonna say, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way, but my kid's getting in those doors. See, that's the thing. Optimism really comes down to trusting that God can get us through the doors when something's blocking it. See, Joseph knew that his brothers weren't big enough to keep him from getting through the doors of his future. Joseph understood that Potiphar's wife wasn't wasn't big enough. By the way, don't you think she felt foolish in the end? Joseph understood that Potiphar's wife Wasn't big enough to keep him from getting through the doors to his future. And he understood that the fact that that guy forgot him and left him in the prison when he promised that he would say something about him, he understood that that guy wasn't big enough to keep him from going through the doors of his future. Not if God was with him. And there isn't anybody or anything big enough to keep you from your future either. If you're a child of God, there's going to come a day when he's going to walk up to whatever's blocking those doors and he's going to say, Move. And it's going to happen. So we trust God. We say, no matter what comes my way, I've got a future that's bright enough to smile about. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to be here tonight and to talk about how we can lean into your grace and how we can have hope even when things don't look perfect. Help us to let go of what we might think is ideal and embrace what you wanna do with our real scenario and our real situation. We thank you in advance for what you're gonna do in every single life in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here.